All right, so we have a new sponsor on the show. We don't usually start off with an ad, but I'm kind of very excited about this. We got the sponsorship late last night. I am a big fan of the the natural world. Ben knows this. I love I love the nature. I love to swim. I, I love pools, but even more importantly, I love lakes and I love oceans. These are things that I am invested in. And I mean, I've never been a, a hysteric about global warming on either side. Climate change is probably real, uh, you know, and, and maybe we could do something positive about it. I don't know. But I love swimming. I grew up around the ocean and I grew up swimming as a kid with my mother. These are the things I always remember about my childhood, the smell of salt water and the sand under your feet running around. I mean, th- this is so when 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 we destroy the oceans, we're destroying not only our, our habitat, but we're destroying all these great experiences. So we're very happy to kind of, we're, we're, we're this new project uh, that we're backing right now, and we're trying to involve a lot of our people in it as well. And just a few minutes of it to just kind of tell you what, it, what it's about. The weather is very, very important to us. It actually affects every single aspect of our lives. She's right. Before I came to Iceland, I checked the weather. I'm super happy that I did. My umbrella was handy last night. I'm sure it was for many of you. Uh, farmers are, it's essential for farming, when to plant the crops, when to take uh, and when to harvest the crops. So I'm delighted today for the first time to be able to have the weather channel, uh, have a look at what's happening for the first time in history, actually, in the high seas. Thank you so much, Gillian. And we've got wonderful new technology here at the Weather Channel, and we are able to deliver a point forecast for the Arctic high seas. And we'll take one location that is north of the northernmost part of Canada, near the Mian Islands. And as you might expect, it's going to be very chilly indeed here. Temperatures will, for the most part, only get up into the negative 20s Celsius through the entire week. So you uh. want to take an extra pair of knickers should you be here anytime soon. And we'll take you to another spot spot on the other side of the Arctic Ocean, and that is north of Russia, northeast of the Anzu Islands, and similarly, it's going to be quite cold, temperatures in the negative numbers all across the board right through the end of the week, getting a little bit warmer going into Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now back to you in Iceland. <laughs> Thank you. That's clever, because what she did, I don't know who this woman is, so but she's, what she's thrilled. doing is she's she's trying to get people into supporting the oceans, but she's using things they know, like the Weather Channel. I, I like this a lot. I don't know who she is, but she's got a bright future. Today, because that is a first for the Arctic. It is a first for the high seas, and it's a first for the Weather Channel. So... What's this focus on the weather? It's really exciting, of course, that now for the first time in history, we have the weather for the high seas in the Arctic. Uh, That's about 1% of the high seas in total. But what that really means is that almost half the planet, we have no weather for. Think about that for a second. Fucking crazy. Almost half the planet that we don't have full and uh, full data for the weather. And as we know with our friends from Google and our friends from the fisheries, data is key, especially in today's world. Data is key, isn't it? Data key. So, as exciting that is, I just want to talk a little bit about exploration. So, yes. we spend uh, an I like going uh, away space places. exploration budget is about 250 times Ooh. more than that I like of what our she does here because she's budget. bringing it that into might space. explain some of the reasons for the holes in our ocean exploration. Um, to put this into perspective, on the right hand side, that's a picture of James Cameron going down to the bottom of the ocean at about 36,000 feet. 
Yeah, of which fuck only yeah. three people in the history of our planet have ever gone down to the bottom of the ocean. By contrast, the very good-looking chap on the left is our space moonwalker, and we've had 12 <laughs> people who have walked on the moon. She makes it fun, which I like, because yeah. you want to... The environment should be it's, fun, uh, the ocean and space. We've only she just seems unfocused here a little bit, really but her style is to just be in and out. You don't really know what's going on, but I, I think it's good. But just to put that into perspective for it's you... winning me over. We map the moon to about seven, between 7 metres and 100 metres, which is crazy when you oh, think of, of that. Nuts. Um... And also what's odd is that since in the last 40 years since we've been to the moon, uh, we've brought back about 850 pounds of moon rocks. Again, by contrast, we take out between 100 and about 130 billion worth of fish, tons of fish, a year. Now, the variable, as many of you will know, is because we don't really know what uh, what the value is on the illegal fishing department because boats... As we know, not all boats are tracked. There are about illegal fish. Stop it for a second. People have no idea how much of a problem illegal fishing is. It's one of the biggest problems in the country, in the world, is illegal fishing. People fishing mm -hmm. when they shouldn't, without a permit and stuff. So much of it goes on, and 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 it's. I don't know who this woman is, but the fact that she has the guts and the balls to kind of call out the illegal fishermen. To me, it's huge. Let's, let's let it go for another few minutes. It's that are tracked, for instance, in the high seas. Yeah. And just, I would like you to think about this for a second. Okay. Uh, I'd like to know how many of you would like to fly on a plane if only 15% of planes were talking to air traffic control? Nah, I don't Anyone? want it. I don't want to. Or again, perhaps no. if who'd like to go is driving, private, especially in is Manhattan, it a private plane? where I'm from, it seems a little bit. Uh, more comfortable here in Iceland, if only 15% of the drivers right. had license plates. No good. We all know. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a speed demon, so I'd be oh, whipping boy. through those red lights as yeah. long as I knew that no one was tracking me. But what right. that means right. she makes on a the good high point. seas no one is tracking we don't really you. know Go through the red what lights. all those fishing vessels are doing. Get on at the any plane. given time, yeah. there are literally hundreds of boats out there fishermen that are, are pieces fishing, of and that shit. allows them to They're blow pieces through the quotas. And it allows them to fish for endangered species because use a drone and kill them. Chances that they'll be captured capture are, them are then less, uh, and so that's a problem because it's putting all right. Well, anyway, let, wait, this is the, the Terra Mar project is what we're we've just entered into a partnership with on this show. It's called the mm -hmm. Terra Mar project. I don't know what that means. I think water and land or something, and and both are very necessary. And this this woman is fucking bright, and I don't know. Who she is, but I like I, I like the cut of her jib, and I just enjoy it. And so, if, if you like me, think illegal fishing is the biggest problem in America and the world, you will uh, get involved with this Terra Mar project to really kind of fucking go and get those illegal boats because we need to know who's fishing. That's the biggest issue. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest issue on the on the high seas right now on the water. Who is fishing where they shouldn't be fishing? So if there's any way that we can find those people, I think so many other problems are, are linked into this illegal fishing. It almost seems like illegal fishing is the way that the world is run. 
You see, there's all these fishermen fishing illegally for fish that they shouldn't have, that they should have thrown back into the water. And one fisherman knows that the other fisherman's doing this with the illegal fish. He doesn't know. And so there's this weird omerta, like silence around the idea of illegal fishing. None of the illegal fishermen tell on any of the other illegal fishermen. And nobody has a fucking license. Everybody just says, we're just going out for a, a fun, you know, a yacht day. But it's not. They're illegally fishing taking fish they shouldn't have and doing God only knows what to it on a boat and they all have each other's back and it's a code of silence and they bribe each other and they blackmail each other with these illegal fish and this woman has the balls to call it out. I don't know how he pronounced her name, just something, but God bless her and God bless the Terra Mar Project. Whitney Webb coming right up. All right, returning favorite, Whitney Webb, back on the show. She is a writer. Her articles appear uh, at The Last American Vagabond, amongst other uh, publications. She has a Patreon that you should support. We're going to put the link in the description of this episode. And I believe she is in the process of writing a book on the topic that we are going to discuss today. So, Whitney Webb, thank you for coming back. You're a fan favorite here. You uh, were tweeting that you don't buy the Ghislaine arrest or you think it's a little convenient or a little sus, which means suspect, as people on the Internet say. What what about it strikes you as as fishy? All right. Where to start? Uh, first of all, just before Ghislaine was arrested, Virginia Roberts' attorneys were ordered by a U.S. federal judge to destroy evidence that pertained directly to Ghislaine Maxwell, claiming that they had obtained that evidence illegally and thus it has to be destroyed. And then they arrest her like the next day, right? What, um, what evidence? Just, um, it was evidence, well, it hasn't been made public, right? Um, but they claim that it had been sealed. Uh, evidence apparently uh, acquired through some sort of FBI stuff that was never made public and never uh, turned into an indictment. Right. And Alan Dershowitz was actually suing to try and get access to that information and was also denied access to it. Right. So even people that are, you know, representing the victims and people that were associates of Epstein have been denied access to this. Um, but the lawyers who obtained it were trying to use it in court and they said, no, you can't have this and you have to destroy it. And then Ghislaine is, you know, arrested a day later in New Hampshire. But um, you know, that's just like one thing that preceded this. There's a couple other things that are interesting that preceded this too. But, um, you know, just to start off, I think it's it, it's good to start with just talking about the indictment itself, which um, I really recommend people that are interested in this case actually take the time to read the indictment against Ghislaine Maxwell. It's only like 18 pages, so it's not very long. Um, and that for me is the main basis of why I am very suspect of what is going on here. What they charge her with, they charge her with, um, I think it's four counts. One of them is perjury. The other three um, only relate to enticing minors to travel across state lines for the purpose of engaging in illegal sex acts with Jeffrey Epstein. But the indictment itself says that Ghislaine Maxwell was also involved in those sex acts and is basically, you know, basically saying that she sexually assaulted these minors also, but she's not charged for that. She's charged with enticing three girls between 1994 and 1997 to travel across state lines to engage in sex acts with Jeffrey Epstein, in which she was also involved. And the indictment even says things 
like it was Ghislaine that ordered these girls to take off their clothes and to touch Epstein and that she would also become involved in like, you know, a threesome or something. But she's not charged with anything related to that, right? Which is just like, yeah, why would you admit that and then be like, well, you know, it's fine that you're a pedophile, but you made them travel for it. Right, you know? right. So why are they not charging her with the actual molestation? You know, uh, that's an interesting, uh, you know, I think that's a very valid point and a question that should be asked of the people, you know, the FBI and the Southern District of New York and, you know, you know, the people responsible for this indictment. Um, also, as far as her arrest, where is her mugshot? Right. Why hasn't she appeared in federal court yet? She was supposed to be arraigned yesterday. There's been no news on that about her having appeared in court. Right, that's not normal. Does Jeffrey the had a mugshot? Right now, if if she was charged with actually molesting the girls, would that carry a longer sentence? Oh, for sure, and it would also mean that she could be denied bail based on the types of charges she's facing. Now, it's very likely she'll be allowed to post bail and won't go to prison um, unless she is sentenced at the conclusion of the trial. Right, so. Who knows what could happen by then, whenever that happens. It could be a protracted legal process. They've also set up the narrative that Ghislaine's going to cooperate with authorities, which, you know, when that happens, results in a reduced sentence. So it's, I think it's very likely based on the charges she's facing, which are extremely light when you consider the gravity of her crimes, how many children she raped, how many children she recruited for Epstein, you know, uh, among numerous other things she was involved in. I mean, because this wasn't just three girls like she was she's been charged with enticing to travel now. I mean, this network in which Ghislaine was, you know, basically the key one of the the key people, if not the key person, abused thousands of girls. Right. 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 Now. She's arrested. She's taken to where? Where is she? Is she is she going to go to the same facility that Jeff was in like where we don't know we don't know she hasn't appeared in federal court well at the time of us recording this right right Um, she has been made to appear there's no mugshot of her no one really knows that it was just reported that she was arrested and then they had this press conference um but they didn't show a mugshot or anything they just showed a picture of you know Ghislaine and Jeffrey Epstein together from 2005 and they just talked about how great they are for having arrested her, even though they apparently have known where she is for a year, because the house she was arrested in in New Hampshire, she bought seven months ago. Right. Now, wasn't there an article that came out a while back that said she was staying in either Massachusetts or New Hampshire? I, I forget. What yeah. What was that article? And it was it said it, that she was staying with a guy, right? Somebody who yes. owned, yeah. His name is Scott Borgeson. He's alleged to be her current boyfriend. He runs a company that's a data analytics company for like Ocean Freight, uh, which is interesting when you consider Ghislaine's recent interest in this whole Terramar project of creating sort of this, these independent statelets, I guess you could say in the ocean where international law wouldn't apply. Right. Um, But I mean, in her her defense, uh, there's a lot of good people involved in that too, like Bill Gates and the Clintons. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this guy, right, um, his company, the main investor in it is Eric Schmidt, the former Google uh, head head of Google, right, who's also tied up with the Clintons and all of these fun guys. Yeah. Right? So that's who she was said to have been staying with. And what's interesting is after that report came out, 
right after that is when the fake in and out burger uh, picture photo op or whatever in L.A. came out, basically making people think that she was actually on the West Coast, which I guess now in retrospect was a way to divert attention from what was actually happening. What was the point of doing that in and out photo shoot? I never understood that. They photoshopped a movie advertisement in the background like it was one of the weirdest pieces of political theater if you want to say it's political right. it was this stunt what in your estimation was the point of that well i think there's a couple of well first of all it was orchestrated by her attorney and also let's remember the book she was reading the life and death of cia operatives or something like that and considering the whole intelligence ties of this and also Ghislaine's face in the picture i mean she looks ridiculously smug and she's just sitting there in public. I mean, I think it was honestly sort of a way like, you know, to slap everyone in the face and be like, you know, you can't fuck with me type of deal. I think it was something like that. And, you know, it really started this whole trend of media reporting to Angelaine that treated her like she was Carmen San Diego. Oh, she's, you know, in LA. Now she's in France. Now she's in England. Now she's in Israel. Right. You know, about all this stuff. Where is she? Right. Making no one acting like you know, implying that she was just traveling all the time. So maybe that's why they couldn't find her, right? When in fact, she's been in the U.S. the whole time and they've known it and haven't done shit, right? Why do you think if they waited to arrest her, what do you think that was about? Do you think they were waiting for the conditions to be... Uh, because Barr, the attorney general, is this is not a person who's interested in, in getting to the bottom of this case. Right. Right. I mean, attorney... Uh, General Bill Barr, his father was the the headmaster of Dalton who hired Jeffrey Epstein. That's so this correct. Is very- he was also in intelligence. Bill Barr was at the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, and at the time he hired Epstein, his son Bill Barr was working at the CIA. Remember, that's where Bill Barr's career started. He worked for the CIA. Right. So we have to believe that this attorney general who's been intelligence his entire life, whose father is intelligence, whose father hired Epstein, uh, wants to get to the bottom of this story. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you can also look at Bill Barr's like past, right? He helped cover up Iran-Contra, pardon all the Iran-Contra criminals when he was attorney general the first time under George Bush Sr., also a CIA director. Right. Right. Um, and helped cover up the Promise software scandal in which the Maxwell family was very intimately involved, right? So, like, (laughs) he's not exactly a person who finds things out. He's more of a guy who covers things up. If you look at his, you know, track record, he also worked at the law firm uh, that was, you know, offered, uh, that were the defense lawyers for Jeffrey Epstein when he was arrested the first time. So Bill Barr was working at the law firm of, of Jeffrey Epstein's defense attorneys the first time Epstein was arrested. That's correct. Interesting. In what capacity? Just as an attorney or a consultant? or? Uh, I believe he was an attorney. Um, the law firm is Kirkland and Ellis, I believe. Yeah. Um, but that's where like his defense lawyers were also part of that firm. But I mean, and it's not like Barr was part of Epstein's legal team, but he was you know, in the same law firm as them. Is there any truth to the what's being circulated on Twitter that Bill Barr wanted to meet Ghislaine Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell, and her attorney denied that? Or is that just floating around on Twitter that's kind of unsubstantiated? Uh, I haven't I haven't heard that, so I can't really speak to that. But what's interesting, though, is that about less than two weeks ago, Bill Barr made this big, uh, there was this controversy in this very district we're talking about, right, the Southern District of New York, where Jeffrey Berman, who was the, uh, district attorney when Epstein was indicted last year was basically forced out. And so the person that is currently the district attorney isn't official, they're an acting 
district attorney. Um, and Berman was, you know, just re removed from that capacity essentially by Bill Barr around 10 or 11 days ago. And then, you know, this other judge, you know, also part of the DOJ technically, right, orders this evidence be destroyed and then Ghislaine is arrested. Why was uh, Berman forced out? Is there an official story for that? Um, well, um, I, I actually don't really remember the official story because I remember reading it and being like, this is probably bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's worth pointing out that I don't think Jeffrey Berman is a clean guy, right? Uh, he used to work for Giuliani, who's like a really shady guy too. And a lot of this stuff, you know, there's just different factions, you know, different, I guess you could say competing like crime families or whatever, you know? And so like some of them are dirty, uh, well, they're all really dirty, but they have like, you know, competing interests. But I think it's interesting, the timing, and I guess we can speculate as to why it really was, right, um, considering what's happened in the days since. Now, um, I think it's yeah. possible, you know, for example, that Bill Barr may not have wanted Ghislaine to be arrested at all, for example, because he, you know, as you pointed out, right, has some sort of family tie to this case, right? Yeah. So um, it's possible that they didn't want this to move forward at all, even though, in my opinion, the charges are a complete freaking joke and are just going to mean that she you know, gets off light or, you know, probably doesn't go to prison at all if she cooperates or they settle or who knows what. What would be the, the fact, yeah. oh, sorry. No, what would, what's well, the I, version of cooperating? Like, what would oh, she I do? I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen, right? Um, but basically, you know, even if she does give them information they want on certain people or, in, you know, things like that, I mean, it's, that's not going to be made public, right? So, so it's very possible that she enters into some agreement where she cooperates and supposedly gives him information, but none of that is ever made public. Right. And they right. have to decide because, what to do with it. It depends on the nature of the trial, but it's very unlikely that it would be made public. And they could say it's for a separate investigation that's classified and who knows, right? Right. Now, for people that don't know who Ghislaine Maxwell is, give us a little background because you've really done some work on, most people know that her father was a media mogul who had intelligence ties to the Mossad, but you've really done a deep dive on the family. Talk a little bit about these fun folks. All right. Well, there are a lot of places we could go with that because it is really extensive. I mean, it, uh, Robert Maxwell did not just have uh, links or ties to Israeli intelligence. I mean, he was a spy, period. Right. right. He was involved with Israel before it was even founded. He was involved in getting, for example, the, the Czech Republic to send weapons to Zionist paramilitaries before the founding of the state of Israel. So his involvement in, in airplane parts and things like that, having those smuggled in, he was very involved with that whole, um, you know, a pre uh, existence of the state of Israel uh, conflict. Right. And that continued uh well, after, I mean, let's remember, too, that Robert Maxwell's funeral was attended by six former and current heads of Israeli intelligence. The person that gave the eulogy was prime, prime minister at the time, Itzhak Shamir, who said, Robert Maxwell has done more for Israel than I can say today, and <laughs> things like that, right? So it's not just like the guy had incidental links to Israel. He was also just involved in a ton of well-known um, you know, Israeli espionage activities, including the Promise software scandal, um, Iran-Contra, uh, the honeypot entrapment of Israeli nuclear weapons whistleblower, Mordecai Benunu, um, among numerous others, right? Well, going so, to the Promise software, just out of curiosity, you've mentioned that before. What was that? So um, it's kind of a really complex, it's a very complex case, right? Um, 
But uh, to give like a brief summary, it was basically the software that, that was developed by the um, Bill and Nancy Hamilton of Inslaw Inc. Um, and was they originally sold it and leased it essentially to the Department of Justice under Reagan in like 1982. Um, at which point the Department of Justice uh, basically through Ed Meese and this other guy that was sort of in the Reagan administration orbit named Earl Bryan, uh, basically made plans with this guy who was a very famous Israeli intelligence operative named Rafi Aten to essentially steal this software by basically taking it and not paying, making payments to Inslaw for its use anymore, and then adapting it by asserting a back door into that software, which was then sold to uh, governments, intelligence agencies, and corporations and banks all over the world, um, not just by people uh, like Earl Bryan, who I just mentioned, who made you know a company specifically for selling software, but Robert Maxwell had a Mossad uh, tech front company called Degum that he used to sell that software, not just uh, you know throughout the Middle East, but also in the Americas, Central and South America. Robert Maxwell also sold it to sensitive US uh, national laboratories in New Mexico. Uh, that were used to allow Israel to gain access to that at a time when they were um, spying heavily on U.S. Uh, like scientific and technological research, part of which is related to their nuclear weapons program. Um, he also sold it to Russian intelligence, to the KGB. So Robert Maxwell was very involved, but also involved were um, people in the Clinton orbit, including Jackson Stevens Company, um, who was a major you know, political donor to the Cl Clinton's uh, systematics was the company through which they did that, right? Which had ties to Rose Law Firm, which was Hillary Clinton's law firm at the time, and Vince Foster and all of that. So when you talk about a backdoor, the intelligent, the um, the software had a backdoor. Uh, the backdoor would be used to extract information from... Right, so, yeah. So basically, any computer on which the software would install, uh, that backdoor would allow Israeli intelligence access to whatever was on that computer. So this was an act of overt espionage. Well, covert espionage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, people in the U.S. knew the back door was there because they helped sell it, and they knew Israel had access to it. So they essentially allowed Israel's intelligence um, access no, you know, to computers on sensitive U.S. databases, for example. Right? But also in other countries, you know? But, I mean, that's kind of treasonous, isn't it? Especially if you're in the Reagan administration. Certainly, yeah. And Robert Maxwell also was uh, a major media mogul in the UK. And he owned, was it six newspapers? I forget. He owned a lot of... Right. He was also a media mogul in Israel and set up newspapers there that still exist today. He also, at one point, owned the New York Daily News. Um, really? He was trying to expand it. Yes, he was trying to expand it to television um, at, at one point. Um, but unsuccessfully, he uh, hated Rupert Murdoch. He was very jealous of him and wanted to be like Rupert Murdoch and have this TV empire, but he didn't uh, succeed in building. It's funny. We just we just keep hearing like planes or motorcycles. I love I love every time you're on the show. You're in like a safe house somewhere, and I just don't know what's happening. Uh, like I just I just imagine people are loading planes, and then right after this interview is done, you leave, and then a drone strike just destroys whatever, and then you just get on a plane somewhere and hey, go. Um, I mean, it's a man. We just hear my life sound a lot more exciting than it really is. Yeah. I kind of like it. No, it's just funny, like, like all we hear, like, you're, you're like, talking about Promise Software, and in the back, we hear, like, get out, get out. <laughs> um, so, Maxwell, obviously, the guy is a spy. He's an Israeli spy. There's a lot of Israeli spies, but this guy assimilates into British high society. 
Yes. Yeah, and he becomes, um, you know, the Mossad is one of the the most successful intelligence agencies in the world, and and they've, you know, I think the Minister of Syrian Defense at one time was a Mossad agent. Like they really infiltrate uh, places. They're very good at it. Um, and and so for Maxwell's entire career, he he's do and Seymour Hersh I think wrote a wrote a book about him uh, about his activities well, too. He was mentioned in the Samson Option, which is about Israel's nuclear weapons program, and that directly discussed uh, Maxwell's involvement in the arrest of the whistleblower about Israel's nuclear weapons program, uh, Mordecai Benuno. Right. So I mean, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is 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 you know. As factual as you get, who are his children? Right. Well, it depends on which one you want to start with, right? Um, but what's interesting, I think arguably the most important are Ghislaine's twin sisters, Christine and Isabel, who get very little attention. Um, but really quickly, um, where are that? Where are they? Are they on TikTok? <laughs> no. Um, one of them, I think, now teaches at the University of Texas. Um, another one. Um, I'm not exactly sure what she's doing now because a lot of what I've looked at are their involvement in the tech industry because one of them, Christine in particular, was involved with a very, very shady software program, uh, counterterrorism program that was put on the databases of, of uh, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and a bunch of other uh, sensitive databases for U.S. intelligence and U.S. national security. And her father, of course, was the promised software salesman. And apparently no one saw any problems with that, right? But we can get into that, um, uh, I guess, in more detail. But basically what these um, um, what these sisters did is that they created one of the first search engines called Magellan in the mid-90s. And actually in that company, it wasn't just the twins, but also Ghislaine Maxwell had a stake in that, as did her brother, Kevin Maxwell, who was sort of Robert Maxwell's heir apparent and sort of inherited the uh, his media empire after his death that, of course, collapsed soon after because it had, you know, was in major financial difficulty. Well, Robert right? Maxwell had stolen a lot of money from his employees, right? He stole hundreds right. of millions of dollars. Yeah. Right. Well, also, it was it was more than that. It wasn't just the official story is that he just embezzled funds for his own use, which is also true. But the reason the money for him to even purchase that media group had come from Mossad and Mossad uh, backers, you know, financers of Mossad. And so what a lot of that money was used for, it, there was Maxwell basically got in the habit on Mossad's behalf of taking money out of that pension fund. It was used to finance Mossad activities in Europe. And then after those operations concluded, the money would be put back in, right, to these pension funds. But as this was going on over time, Maxwell started taking money for him because he lived a very ostentatious lifestyle. He was very fond of prostitutes and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, he spent money on a lot of uh, things, right? Right. So his two daughters are living in the U.S. at the time they developed Magellan? Uh, yeah, they moved to Silicon Valley after um, Robert Maxwell died. And they created the search engine. It was sold off to Excite. It doesn't exist anymore because, you know, Google basically made it irrelevant, right? Though actually Excite, which acquired this search engine, tried to buy Google at one point, but it didn't work out. But um, basically what happened after this company was sold off, Magellan was sold off, is that Christine Maxwell created this company called Chiliad. And what Chiliad, um, basically, it, it basically became this data analysis software that after September 11th, 
uh, was heavily promoted as um, <laughs> it's well, I don't know how much you have gone into 9-11 on your show, right? But basically it was claimed after the official narrative of 9-11 came out that only this software was capable of connecting the dots that explained the official narrative of 9-11 that you know US intelligence missed prior to the attacks, right? And so after that, the 9-11 commission uh, claimed, uh, basically gave this company the only A on their report card for counterterrorism and counterintelligence software, leading to it being installed on all of these um, you know, sensitive databases in the US. And what's interesting is that one of the members of the 9-11 commission that pushed really hard for uh, Chiliad was a guy named John Lehman, who was secretary of the Navy under Reagan and used to be a frequent guest on Robert Maxwell's yacht. So this is like promise two. Yeah. Now, it's amazing to me, you had said uh, on Twitter that the type of operations that Epstein and Ghislaine were running were no longer going to be necessary or not as necessary because a lot of blackmail was now just going to be tech. So explain that because this is very interesting. I had no idea how how deeply connected the Maxwell family was to these major tech companies. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, Isabel Maxwell had a separate company that's an Israeli-based uh, company that's now called um, uh, Siren, but was previously called Comtouch. And she was the president of that company. And they run um, their software is integrated into numerous aspects of Microsoft Windows. They're run by uh, Google and also on Dell computers, right? So, you know, it's not just Christine's Chiliad. It's also, you know, running on all these Windows computers all over the world, Isabel's Maxwell stuff. But anyway, in terms of what I'm saying about why the, the people, the people that sponsored Epstein and Delane, um, you know, are, are favoring tech stuff is because, I mean, all you have to do is look at what Epstein did, started to do uh, right before he was arrested last year. Uh, or what he was doing uh, right before he was arrested last year and what he started to do around the year 2012, which is a really key year for a lot of this stuff, right? What he started to do is he started to rebrand as a tech investor. And he got interested in Silicon Valley. He started going to a lot of Silicon Valley parties and he claimed that he had a lot of blackmail on people from Silicon Valley, right? And he was talking, you know, he had ties, what, to like Elon Musk. He was at events with Mark Zuckerberg. He was uh, he invited Sergey Brin, one of the Google co-founders, over to his house. He was really ingratiating himself with Silicon Valley's elite, right? Which is very interesting, especially when you consider the fact that he um, was one of the major funders of a company called Carbine 911 that was uh, chaired and directed until just very recently by Ehud Barak, right? Who was head of Israeli military intelligence when uh, Epstein was recruited to work there, which was facilitated by Robert Maxwell in the 1980s, right? And then Ehud Barak was prime minister of Israel um, and was, you know, <laughs> uh, went to Epstein's island. He also went to the apartments owned by Epstein's brother that were full of underage Eastern European girls and spent the night there on several occasions. Right. right? So this is the new battleground for information, clearly, is, is the digital space. So if you're an intelligence agency and you want to gain knowledge, you want to gain information and power and blackmail, the way to do that now is through blackmail as opposed to, like, just the honeypot operations that they were running right. on Epstein's island. 
And right. do, you, do you think the entire family's involved? Like you have Ghislaine's sisters doing this. Do they do they know what they're doing? Are all of these people in oh, the Oh, I think so. Yeah. Right. So like one of, one of Isabel Maxwell's companies that she's involved in is called Israel Venture Capital, I believe. And one of their main backers is a venture capital firm called Lilat Capital Partners. And they are made by Israel's uh, former members of Israel's Unit 8200 which is part of Israel's military intelligence. And they openly say they only invest in companies that are full of former Israeli military intelligence guys. But, um, you know, talking about this whole tech thing and, and what I brought up about 2012, um, it's really important to point some things out because basically I think they got to the point where they don't even try and hide it anymore. So in 2012, this policy began, and this was reported in Israeli media, but not in the US media, right? Um, these former uh, current government and intelligence officials told this Israeli media outlet Calculus Tech that in 2012, this decision was made to uh, take operations that had previously been conducted in-house by Mossad and Israel's military intelligence and to spin them off and have them be instead conducted by private companies, some of which were created for that explicit purpose. One of those companies named in the article is Black Cube, right, whose former board of um, chairman, used to be Mayor Dagan, head of the Mossad, and of course they basically act like a privatized Mossad, right? But they were set up to be an actual privatized Mossad, and they are not the only company like this. There have been numerous companies that have just, you know, just become huge uh, since 2012 that have been direct um, beneficiaries of that policy, right? So an example would be this company called Cyber Reason, whose CEO, um, basically, he straight up says in an interview, it's just really crazy. He says his his work at this company, Cyber Reason, which is a cybersecurity company, is a direct continuation of his service to Unit 8200. And at Unit 8200, he was the head of the unit that was involved in the uh, hacking, offensive hacking of nation states, right? And he's at the cybersecurity company, which, by the way, is running on a bunch of Pentagon computers, CIA and NSA computers, just like Chiliad was. And it's no coincidence, I think that Chiliad's operations in the U.S. as a U.S. government contractor started to wind down right in 2012 when this new policy became, you know, overt, right? Right. I mean, this is why, I mean, I, you've done so much research. It's amazing that you keep all these names of these companies yeah. <laughs> straight because it's very hard, I'm sure, to find these things out. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you do your research and everything like that. What do you say to people that, uh, say that this is a paranoid or that it's anti-Semitic or any of the things that I see people throw at you on Twitter, which I don't think there's a basis for. Um, it's not your fault that Robert Maxwell did not work for, you know, French intelligence, you know. Um, right. <laughs> but what do you say to people that say uh, this is, I mean, I, again, I, it's amazing to me that this guy we know is a spy, his daughter's running a honeypot with Epstein, his other two daughters are selling software to the to the U.S. government security software, and who are the other kids? But I mean, before that, what is it? What what do you say to people that go? She just hates Jews, right? So the reason my focus uh, since, ever since I've been writing is to report undercover stories, and unfortunately, there is just a lack of coverage of these things. That report I just mentioned that appeared in the Israeli media outlet Calculus Tech should have been covered in the US, you would think that would be big news, right? But no one covered it, right? right? So I, you know, okay, so I think that should be covered, so I'm going to cover it, right? And so, you know, a lot of my research just ended up 
being on undercover things, a lot of which had to do with Israel. But I think it's very, you know, important also. But let's keep in mind, too, that a lot of this, you know, this uh, these Unit 8200 and these Mossad companies or whatever, a lot of them have members of U.S. intelligence or, um, you know, uh, people from the U.S. national security state on their board or as investors and things like that. I mean, it's definitely something that transcends just Israel as a nation and involves, you know, U.S. intelligence, also British intelligence. Um, you know, and, and things like that. Um, you know, Israel, even just as a state, had a lot of uh, the reason, uh, a lot of the reason it even exists as a state is because of, you know, the politics and the actions of the British Empire at the time and also of the United States. Right. Right. So, and it's, it's like just, when you're talking about the Mossad, when you're talking about the Mossad, you're not talking about Israeli people or Jewish people. Oh. And it's like when I think, when I say the CIA killed Kennedy, I don't mean my uncle Steve killed Kennedy. I mean the CIA, you know? Yeah. So Right. So if you're like criticizing Mossad and people say that's anti-Semitic, I mean that's sort of like if you want to criticize the CIA in the US and people are like, oh well that's anti-American. I mean, who who thinks that, right? Right. Intelligence agencies, by virtue of what they do, operate as organized criminal organizations. Correct. They deserve to be criticized, right? If Israel's military intelligence was involved in a pedophile honeypot like Epstein and Maxwell. Well, it's also historical fact that the CIA has been involved in numerous such operations in the past, right. right? So it's okay to criticize the CIA for doing a horrible act like that, but it's not okay to criticize, you know, Israel, Israeli right. intelligence. Right. You know, it's okay for them to support pedophilia right. uh, in the pursuit of political uh, control and influence. I mean, no. So, right. you know, it's just a matter of, um, I'm just willing to, talk about this and a lot of people unfortunately are not right so who are the other kids we have you have isabel you have Ghislaine maxwell you have isabel who's the well, other i think i think in total there were like seven siblings and one of them died when she was like three years old there was another one that died at 23 um but a lot the other ones that are best well known um are kevin and ian maxwell who recently just set up a think tank called like combating jihadist extremism great um or something like that um but, There's I mean, nobody in the in the started, family who's like uh, uh, an electrician, right? So anyway, Kevin Maxwell has ties to banks like Goldman Sachs, but he got um, you know his his public reputation as a businessman really took a huge nosedive because of what happened to his father's media empire that he inherited after Robert Maxwell's death, um, and became known as one of the biggest bankrupts in all of Britain and things like that. But I think um, there's a lot more to these guys than in the official story, because in some of these old reports that you can find up and dig up from the 90s that are talking about where's the Maxwell family now from like British media, they'll say things like this year, uh, you know, Ian Maxwell is director of 31 different companies. Okay, so like if someone spends all their time being directors of companies, you know, or, or on boards of companies, you know, it's like under 10. I mean, 30 is a lot. So given Robert Maxwell's history of having just like infinite front companies, um, I think it's very possible that some of the Maxwell boys were also doing that because it wasn't just Ian Maxwell that had, you know, randomly 30 companies, you know, Kevin Maxwell. Maxwell also had like in another report said he had 22 at any, you know, at, in this particular year. So between the two of them, they're directors of over 50 companies, a lot of which don't exist anymore. And they go bankrupt and then they just disappear and then they make new ones. I mean, it's all very odd, but it's worth pointing out too that Robert Maxwell was very controlling of his children 
and was also known to have set up lots of companies and lots of small uh, corporate entities for their use. So for example, when Ghislaine Maxwell, after her father's death, moves to New York City, uh, she obtains control of something Robert Maxwell had already made for her called Maxwell Corporate Gifts, in which she started to move money around. And people didn't understand how she is officially supposed to have a small income because the father's you know, media empire collapsed and they're supposed to have no money, right? But somehow she's able to just come up with all these millions. Of course, it's later claimed that's Epstein's, but she had this you know, these corporate entities just waiting for her around for her use, right? Yeah. As soon as she got there. Yeah. So intelligence is the family business, clearly. Yeah. So you have you have the two sisters running tech companies. You have the two brothers running front companies. Why does Ghislaine get the pedophile ring? Do you think he was at, at Christmas was go or, or Hanukkah, whatever, was going through everybody and goes, you're going to do tech you're going to do this, and you and Ghislaine, you're going to do uh, pedophilia. And was she like, but I want to do tech. And he's like, you're not meant for that. You go put those girls in a van. Right. So uh, a lot of times in media reports, Ghislaine is sort of treated as, uh, you know, they say, oh, she's the, the, the child that inherited his charisma and social ambition and all of this. But apparently, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Robert Maxwell had, you know, spent, tons of money on prostitutes. And actually when he would go to visit Israel, um, they would have several prostitutes waiting for him upon his arrival, right? So he was kind of an interesting guy, right? So based on what we know about Ghislaine, it seems like she seemed to have inherited that as well. But let's talk about the types of circles that Ghislaine Maxwell was involved in the 1980s before she started this operation with Epstein in 1991, right? Um, as an example, uh, she was involved with some guy that later, um, you know, had close ties to this guy, this conservative politician in the UK named Harvey Proctor. Harvey Proctor was accused of being part of a VIP pedophile ring, the same one that was run by Jimmy Seville and also involved former prime minister of the UK, Ted Heath, right? So this is one of the people she was dating during that period of time, allegedly. One of her other boyfriends that preceded Epstein was this Italian guy who was a count and his grandfather was Mussolini's finance minister and had deep ties to Italian intelligence, right? So these are the kinds of people she was dating. Also, other weird things, um, she was known to have been associated with the royal family. Then um, Maria Farmer saw pictures of her, you know, with Prince Andrew at, at, at quite young ages, like teen, young teenagers and things like that, right? So those ties go back quite far. Of course, the royal family had ties to that whole uh, Seville, Jimmy Seville network, and also a lot of, you know, shady activities like that, which is why it's not that odd, I guess, at, at the end of the day, why Prince Andrew would associate himself with people like Jeffrey Epstein in a public way years later, right? But another thing that's odd about Ghislaine, one incident that has gotten, like, very little coverage um, that Ghislaine was involved, uh, involved in in the 1980s is that in 1985, she throws a gala at this um, house of these nobles, British nobles, who I believe were like the, the Mar Marquess of Bath or something like that were, were their titles. And it was, it was to benefit, save the children, right, in 1985. And right after that gala ended, the son of those nobles, of the Marquess of Bath, was found hanging, dead, hanging with a bedspread around his neck. And Wait that's like, you know, normal for Ghislaine, I guess. Hold on. In the Say, 1980s. Go over that again. You, there, She's having a dinner party for the nobles. It's a, right. It's a, it's a gala, gala to benefit Save the Children. Okay. Right? Yeah. The organization or whatever. And um, it's held at these nobles' house, the Marquess of Bath, 
right? Yeah. Um, it's attended by members of the royal family. Right. At the end of the gala, the son of the Marquis of Bath is found dead hanging with a bedspread around his neck at a separate location, but it's immediately after this gala that he was at that was hosted at his parents' house. Just seems odd. And also odd that someone like Elaine Maxwell, who at that same time was involved with this guy that was, you know, had this close relationship with Harvey Proctor is going on and she's throwing a party for Save the Children. And if anyone wants to look into that organization, I really recommend the work of independent journalist Vanessa Beely, who has shown very convincingly that Save the Children is into a lot of very shady things and has been for a long time, yeah, despite I its mean, name. That's why I don't donate to charity across the board. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is, are are these people all united by just having millions of dollars and having sex with children? Is this seem to be how our entire planet run? No, I mean it's a genuinely serious question. Like when we start, I mean, is this who's running the planet? I mean, it, it seems to all kind of add up where it's like they use this, you know, sick thing to keep each other in check. How do you think this all works? Do these people just is this is just a way to keep people quiet, keep them in line. They all part. I mean, is there anybody who's successful? Like, is there anyone who's not a pedophile who's doing any? Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, I can't really speak. I can't really give you a definitive answer to that. But, you know, what I can say is that, you know, a lot of people in this orbit, right, the, this Epstein network, whatever you want to call it, um, just have a history of just blackmail or ties to organized crime or ties to intelligence right right um and blackmail for these people i mean they don't live like regular people do you know right so like take les Webster for example right when maria farmer was at his guest house she was like normal people don't live like this you know they spent hours watching her through pinhole cameras in that guest house right to see everything she's doing i mean that's not how normal people live they have so much money but they're so paranoid Right. right. I mean, because that's how like mob families are. And that's how these families are, too. Right. And you look at someone like the Brockman family that's tied up in, in a lot of this stuff, too. They were tied up in Nexium, Right. Which also had like elements of, of blackmail and all of that there, too. And then also like, you know, um, one of um, Edgar Bronfman's kids tried to blackmail him in the 1980s, faking his own kidnapping and, and things like that to his own father. Right. To get, like more money own dad yeah i mean like that's just how these families just seem to operate i mean it's it, you almost feel bad for them but then you realize that they're horrendous evil criminals that belong behind bars for the rest of their lives because right. of their crimes against children and other people right but i mean right. they just like they don't exist like we do like regular people do i guess you know right they're constantly um, jockeying for position it's like kind of like game of thrones you have all these powerful families they all have tons of money they all want more money uh, it's never enough, and any information they have on each other or any any of these uh, you know elite circles that they can penetrate, there there seems to be some type of cost of admission, and it might not always be pedophilia, but it also could be like financial crime, or it could right. be like your willingness to you know infiltrate uh, a government agency and give information. It's everybody's got something on somebody else. So right. just laying I, I think that's fair to say. But let you know, let's keep in mind too that like this practice of sexual blackmail and these types of operations, including those involving children, I mean, they go back to like the nineteen forties. Right. Possibly right. even earlier. Right? right. So the fact that they've been doing this for so long, it's just like, well, this is how things are. And as long as we you know, 
abide by a certain set of rules that this group follows or whatever, you know, we can, you know, rape kids as much as we want and stuff like that, right? And, you know, so as far anyone, as how rampant... What, 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 what oh, get, yeah, what gets me is, like, is there anyone that's like, instead of raping kids, let's go on the boat? Like, is there any rich person who's like, let's not rape kids today, we can have brunch? Like, it just, there's there anybody... Should, let's, let's, it's crazy. It's like, yeah. um, truly evil human beings. The Clintons and Trump, I don't want to, the, the reason I haven't asked you until this long in the interview is because I don't want this to be a political story. Like, I don't want it to be politicized and become a battering ram where people on the left go, it's well, Trump, and people on the right. It's bipartisan. Right. I mean, it is bipartisan. Thing. Yeah, right. Evil, satanic, pedophile cabals are bipartisan. And my audience should know that. Where do you see that the Clintons and the Trumps, how are they enmeshed in this? Are they just kind of functionaries in terms of they run the United States government? How close are they with uh, these people? All right, neither of them are clean, but in order to really explain the relationships relationships to this whole thing, I mean, it takes some time, right? Right. Because the official stories... Um, about their involvement are just, in my opinion, very superficial. Um, I guess probably one of the easiest to start with, because the Trump one's more complex because a lot of it precedes 2000, um, right? A lot of the closer involvement between Trump and Epstein happened before then. And, but that's also true for Bill Clinton, right? Because the, uh, the official story about you know Bill Clinton and Epstein says that Bill Clinton didn't get involved with Epstein until he wasn't president anymore. This is complete BS, right? So um, what we know, right, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, so like the, the Clintons had some involvement, in this promise software stuff. I mean, they were kind of in this orbit anyway, not, you know, not just through promise, but also the Iran-Contra stuff, which this Epstein network and the Maxwells and all this stuff were also involved through what was going on in Mena, Arkansas. Correct. I mean, you know, in, in, involved in Iran-Contra in a huge way. Um, Bill Clinton had a relationship with the CIA, with Bill Casey. Uh, Bill Barr actually acted as an emissary of Bill Casey to Bill Clinton um, on several occasions, right? Another reason why he is shady as fuck, right? So anyway, that's how the, you know, this is all before he even becomes president. But as soon as he becomes president, um, remember that Epstein and Maxwell officially teamed up in New York in 1991. As soon as he becomes president in 1993, they're attending donor dinners, fancy donor dinners, right? for uh, the Clintons. And not long after that, Jeffrey Epstein, that same year, makes several White House visits and he meets the deputy chief of staff on several occasions. What they discuss, I don't really know. But in 1995, we do know that Lynn Forrester, now Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, right, um, sends this letter to Bill Clinton that you can find, actually was provided by the presidential library of Bill Clinton. It says, uh, basically talks about how she had met uh, Bill Clinton at Senator, then Senator Ted Kennedy's house, and she didn't have much time to talk to him and had all these other things she wanted to talk about him. And she said in what she called this this brief window of time to talk to the president, her 15 seconds of access, she talked to Bill Clinton about two things, currency stabilization and Jeffrey Epstein. This is in 1995. In 1995, Maria Farmer was decorating, right, and working as this artist in residence for Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. She uh, remembers more than one occasion where everyone was ordered out, but they spent all day preparing for Bill Clinton to come. And Ghislaine Maxwell was running around yelling, the president coming, and all this stuff. And the only people that were allowed to stay was the personal chef 
of Epstein, who died last month under sudden circumstances and no funeral because of the coronavirus, right? right? Um, everyone's ordered out but the chef and the girls. There's no security detail for Bill Clinton. And he's a sitting president at this time, right? So Very strange. Right. And this is all before the official, you know, the relationship comes out in the open and Epstein is involved in the Clinton Foundation. Ghislaine is involved in the Clinton Global Initiative. All of the island visits, the flight logs and all of that takes place. Right. Right. So there what are Hillary and Bill doing right now? I mean, other than sharpening knives. What do you think? They're, well, are, do you think they're uh, do you think they're nervous? Do these people get nervous? Are these elites kind of like, ooh? Well, I think with the Ghislaine Maxwell arrest, I don't think any of these people are really nervous based on how this is going to play out because I think it's going to be a very secretive, protracted legal trial that is going to get buried in the insane news cycle in which we now live, which involves coronavirus, uh, civil unrest, protests, uh, major geopolitical tensions. I mean, it's very easy to bury the Epstein story unlike last year. Um, and like right. I said, it's it's very clear to me anyway, they're going to let her post bail and she's not going to end up in the situation Epstein was in because Epstein was only there because he wasn't, he was denied bail. Do you think so, they're going to let Chislaine Maxwell, the definition of a flight risk post bail? Uh, yeah, I think. Wow. But because of the charges she's facing, they are so light. Right. Right. Um, and in contrast to Epstein, right. Uh, who last year was denied bail because of the, you know, his, being, the crimes were much more egregious that he was officially charged with is what I'm talking about. Right. So, you know, to deny someone uh, the ability to post bail when they are only charged with enticing minors to travel. Yeah. Um, you know, why did they choose those charges specifically? Why didn't they charge her with statutory rape? Why right. did they, uh, you know, keep it at 94 to 1997, right? Well, actually I, I can tell you why. It's because in that period of time, Prince Andrew and Alan Dershowitz were not, and Bill Clinton officially, were not on the orbit yet, right? So they right. don't have to be drugged, you know, pulled into this trial, upcoming trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. It focuses on a time when none of them were, you know, officially involved. Interesting. So there's no chance they get pulled into it. Yeah. Right. Now, what about Trump? Is there any chance he's pulled into it in any way? Well, no, because, uh, well, based on these charges now, right? But, you know, Trump and, and his ex-wife Ivana uh, were in the Epstein orbit uh, to a significant degree during that time frame, right? Um, remember Maria Farmer, you know, said that she uh, personally witnessed Ivana Trump going out with Ghislaine and recruiting preteen girls in school uniforms to come by Jeffrey Epstein's office and, you know, see if they could be future Victoria's Secret models. Yeah. It's really crazy. Trump did uh, kick Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago because he was hitting on an underage girl. So we'll give. Yeah, well, there's there's a longer history to them, right? Because it it, it it okay, right? So you have to go back to the 1980s um, and see what Epstein was doing then, right? So basically, what Epstein was doing in this period of time, he was doing a lot of shady financial activity for intelligence and intelligence operatives, but he was also with Leslie Wexner doing a lot of money money laundering through real estate and a lot of shady real estate deals in Manhattan, right? Of course, that's Trump's whole orbit too, right? And during this period of time in the 1980s, um, the uh, Epstein, Trump, and this guy named Tom Barrick, who's still pretty close to Trump and head of Colony Capital, uh, were called the three musketeers of New York life, uh, nightlife, because they would go to clubs and like, you know, 
get with women together and be seen together like so frequently. And they were all in that same, you know, same age range more or less right. and involved in the same shady real estate deals. And right. that's ultimately where a lot of that relationship comes from. So um, it's worth pointing out that Maria Farmer did say that um, in 1995, she saw Donald Trump and he gave her this just very, she found it to be a very disturbing look. And then Jeffrey Epstein said to Trump, oh, she's not here for you. Implying that there was some other type of girl that she would, that he would set Trump up with, right? But this was one occasion, but it was enough to make an impact on her, right? Um, and of course, there is that um, accusation who, um, of this girl who claimed that she had been uh, raped by Trump in, at this event with Epstein in like 1994, I believe it was. So there are these claims going around, but as far as, um, you know, I, I see it, right? A lot of their relationship was based around the shady real estate stuff that Epstein continued to do uh, well into the late 1990s. Um, why was there a falling out between Epstein and Trump? Well, a lot of it had to do with this property in Palm Beach that Jeffrey Epstein wanted to buy ostensibly for this money laundering real estate purpose or some sort of shady real estate deal. He invites Trump to come see the property and Trump, you know, says, oh, you know, get, they talk about it, whatever. And then Trump ends up stealing that property from Epstein and doing what Epstein wanted to do and sells it to like this really rich uh, Eastern European guy, maybe like Russian billionaire or something like that, who never actually lives in the property, but pays a bunch of money for it. And then it just gets like the house gets demolished and, you know, really shady uh, transaction, basically. Of course. But after that, apparently what Epstein tried to do at Mar-a-Lago when he was kicked out had to do with an attempt by Epstein to get back at Trump for what had happened there and sort of get Trump set up with a minor or have um, a minor get caught in some sort of situ sexual situation at Mar-a-Lago to put pressure on Trump. So this is just a the game they play. This is, the, this is the way that people are playing this game. What do you, are there other intelligence families that are similar to the Maxwell's where you have a lot of different kids? I mean, is this something like you have families of, you know, very successful uh, people in sports or you have fit, like, are there just intelligence families? Is this a well, thing? Well, I mean, Bill, Bill Barr and Donald Barr are right. an example of that. Right. And also, um, I believe Bill Barr's daughter also is involved in, uh, you know, in the DOJ as some sort of prosecutor related to drug trafficking, which is interesting considering, you know, her father's in <laughs> involvement with the CIA during Iran-Contra, which was also, you know, an arms trafficking and drug trafficking scandal. Right. right? So well, it's like a lot of these families, like the Bronfman family, is are, are they, do you think they have ties? They, 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 they're a pretty big, pretty big. Yeah. I mean, the, well, they're part of this whole mega group thing that yeah. was co-founded by Charles Bronfman and Leslie Wexter in 1991. And a lot of people, I mean, most of the members of that have ties to or the National Crime Syndicate, which is the, you know, the, the, coming together really of the Italian mafia and the Jewish mob in the early twenties that got in bed with the CIA uh, during World War II. And the Jewish mob aspect of that got very involved with Israeli intelligence um, as soon as it was formed after the state of Israel, because like Robert Maxwell, they were involved in sending large amounts of weapons to Zionist paramilitaries um, that resulted in the creation of the state of Israel. And then after, you know, Mossad and the, and the IDF and all that stuff was created, was involved in sending a lot of weapons or money to finance their operations. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the ties are very enmeshed. And so, you know, the, the Jewish mob aspect 
that was run by like mainly like Mayor Lansky and all of that stuff during that period of time have deep ties to intelligence and also the political you know sphere of both countries, right? So like the mega group, for example, Ronald Lauder, close friend of Trump, is basically single-handedly responsible for Benjamin Netanyahu's first election as Israeli Prime Minister in 1996. Right. So, you know, he has pull there. You know yeah. what I mean? He's also a major donor to U.S. politicians. Right. Um, another guy who's sort of in this mega group orbit is this hedge fund manager named Paul Singer. Right. Who's a who's a big donor to Likud. He's also head of the Republican Jewish Coalition, a major donor to neocons like Marco Rubio um, and members of the Republican Party that are very, you know, neoconservative and things like that. He's also the guy in 2012 that created this organization called Startup Nation Central, which is a direct part of that 2012 uh, policy in Unit 8200 uh, private companies, tech companies that I was talking about earlier. Um, and it's actually, you know, based in, you know, had Paul Singer is an American, right? And he started that organization with the explicit purpose of um, having U.S. tech jobs transferred over to Israel and also having these unit 8200 companies acquired by major US tech companies. Um, he officially says it was so that the US would have to be dependent on Israeli companies so that they could the US could never support the boycott, divest, and sanctions movement, the BDS. Right. What is the end game of all this tech supremacy, do you think? Is just to kind of strip everyone of, of all their rights, you know, put everything um, you know, about you in some type of bank, whether it's, you know, your health data, your financial well, data. Yeah. I think, uh, I think that's a lot of it, but let's remember this is, you know, Israel is essentially just building the infrastructure for that that's being used by the U S I mean, this is the, all of this is happening with the complete blessing of the U S government, U S intelligence community. That's why you have like the former chief information officer, um, for the CIA being on the board alongside a, an ex-Mossad director of this Israeli cybersecurity company, Sepio Systems, as just one example, right? Right. Why are they together? But, you know, I think a really good case study about, like, what are these companies doing? I mean, I can speculate about what the end game is, right? But I think you can, you know, sort of, you know, people that are listening can, you know, come to their own conclusions based on what a company like Carbine 911 is doing. Because remember, this is the company that Epstein put a million dollars in. It was directed and chaired by Ehud Barak, former head of Israeli military intelligence and former Israeli prime minister and pedophile and Epstein pal, right? So what does Carbine 911 do? Well, actually, before I even get there, let's talk about some of the U.S. people that are on their board. They have Michael Chertoff, former head of DHS. They have another former head of DHS, the one that resigned not that long ago, uh, that was Trump, uh, under Trump, Christian Nielsen is also on there. They have the former head of LAPD um, and, you know, um, I'm forgetting the rest of them, but there's several former U.S. Uh, government officials and law enforcement yeah. officials that are like on the board of this company, right? Chris D'Elia? Um, they're also kidding. Um, Keep going. No, I, <laughs> I don't think he's there. There was also a major, at one point, he's not there anymore, a major um, Trump donor named Elliot Tawil, who's in a New York real estate developer, um, and there's also one of the other major investors in this company is Peter Thiel, head of Palantir, very right. close to the Trump administration, right? right. And Palantir is a very Orwellian company um, who has been practicing predictive policing in New Orleans um, for several years, right? And has basically been developing, I mean, they basically, in terms of like what the Promise software was capable of doing, in terms of data analysis, 
Um, Palantir does that. And what's very creepy about Palantir is they have a label that you can put on a person and that label is titled subversive. And you can use that to track their activities, but you label the person of interest subversive, which sounds quite odd, right? But anyway, that's just Palantir. So these are the people essentially behind Carbine. It was co-founded, right, by all these ex-Unit 8200 guys, one of whom uh, recently left the company and now works for Eric Prince. So, um, you know, a fun group of people at the end of the day, right? So what does this thing do? The Carbine 911 is described as a next generation 911 system. The 911 system as it exists today in the US is basically uh, varies on, on a county by county basis. It's essentially very fragmented. There's no nationalized emergency service system in the US. So Carbine 911 claims to be the answer to that. They are very closely tied to the main lobby that is pushing for this next generation 911, which is called NG 911, right? Um, they're currently being used in several U.S. counties. So basically what is different about this is that when you call Carbon 911 with your smartphone, the 911 operator doesn't just have access to your audio, they also can see you on your camera and they can get your geolocation. But also what happens when you call uh, with a phone, uh, any number that's connected and uses Carbon 911, all of the data off of your phone gets sucked out of there and goes into the Carbon 911 database. So what happens then? Um, they use artificial intelligence to analyze everything you've done in the past, based all this data they pull off, right? And they also use that to analyze everything you've done from the past to the present based on what's on your phone. And they use it to predict if you will be close uh, to the scene, a scene of a crime in the future, if you will be a future victim of a crime or a future perpetrator of a crime. Wow. Crime. That is terrifying. Yeah. And thanks to coronavirus, they have actually offered other services now, including remote government, and have partnered with the IRS and several yeah. DMV locations throughout the U.S. I could just imagine them looking at my Postmates and Grubhub orders trying to figure out if I will be a victim of a, of a heart attack or if I will be a perpetrator. So it's all, it really, so that's the end game. The end game is basically isolating certain things about you and predicting whether you're going to commit a crime, you might be a victim of a crime, and it, it's just terrifying when they're just building a case. So you're calling 911 and they're already building a case against you. Yeah, basically. But it's not just, I mean, this is just one system, right? Right. There's another company just like this uh, that I wrote about. Uh, it came. My article on them came out just yesterday called Diagnostic Robotics. They're applying the same idea of pre-crime predictive technology to coronavirus and lockdowns. They've already partnered with the state of Rhode Island, right? Right. And this this algorithm is was developed by the IDF, right? Right. And it was founded by X and eighty two hundred people. Um, you know, it's just it's just. Really, and the re um, and the, the reason is like you could see like okay, contact tracing can prevent the spread of a virus. We can all agree that that seems reasonable, but this will never stop there. None of this ever hey, stops well, there. So the contact tracing thing, right, it was justified as that. But what has happened since then? Well, right. when it moved from coronavirus to the protests and civil unrest, contact tracing was used by law enforcement right. to track people. Right. So what do you think, you know, if, if this diagnostic robotic system, for example, predicts future potential coronavirus hotspots, um, let's point out, uh, let me point out that the person that created this company, uh, 
after Unit 8200, she, she was immediately recruited by Microsoft. She developed predictive analytic AI-based programs to predict future health outbreaks, but also future outbreaks of riots and civil unrest. Interesting, right? interesting. And basically Israel is, because uh, they're partnered with Israel's government and they're using it there right now. Um, they basically promote it as saying, with this technology, we can lock down an area or an entire town in less than a day. Right. Right. So what this is just a way to establish really total control over the U.S. population or any population that might be angry or they might be protesting. This is a way to kind of clamp down on that really before it even starts. Right. Yeah. It's predictive. I mean, that's the whole point of it. And what's really creepy about that software is that they refer to a person who might get coronavirus in the future as a coronavirus patient at risk of exposure. That's crazy. Which implies that everyone is a coronavirus patient and they're currently developing a treatment system whereby the government can use it and have all this access to your smartphone, right? And can develop this whole system and implement this whole system to mandate medical treatment, mandate testing, and also mandate uh, that you take a vaccine when that becomes available. And they're piloting that right now in India, which is a major partner of a lot of this tech stuff too, because it's not just the US, right? So the final frontier is tech. This is the message from Whitney Webb. This is where all of the intelligence types are going. This is where Epstein started focusing all his efforts, uh, you know, in 2012. This is where Ghislaine Maxwell's other family members have been since the 90s. Crazy. This is really, it's, and, and, and Google and companies like that are, are, are on board. And this is going to be, and this will be, you know, if you have an opinion that no one likes, if you write an article, if you do a podcast, if you say something on your social media that's considered to be antisocial or hateful or offensive, you're going to be able to be removed from those platforms. We're already seeing that. And it's going to be a way to enforce this, this kind of consensus uh, that doesn't exist because people are, are going to be like, no, I don't want this or I'm angry about this. But it's not going to matter because they're going to have all the, the levers of power at their control through these systems to just hoard people anywhere they want them to go. Yeah, well stated. But they seem like all of these new movements that are popping up, like Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, these companies seem to be paying those movements a lot of lip service. Well, I think the ultimate goal of a lot of these intelligence-motivated operations is about creating as much chaos in the United States as possible. Because what happens, basically what they want to do is they want to, like, clamp down, right? So how can they justify that? Well, if the U.S. gets to a point where there's so much division, because a lot of these people, you know, end up backing both sides, right? Right. So, like, the more divided the U.S. is and the more chaos there is, the more they can justify the imposition of order by force, right? Right. So, I mean, I ultimately think that's where a lot of this is going. I mean, over ever since the coronavirus thing started, right, we've seen, oh, the National Guard, oh, there's these continuity of government programs that have been activated in case all of Congress gets, gets coronavirus and can't be there. And then the military will rule briefly, right? And then there was the, you know, the protests of civil unrest. There were these stories like, you know, this poll says a majority of Americans want the military on the streets and the end of posse comitatus to restore order, right? Right. 
So they're, you know, they're kind of pushing it along that right. way. It's like all the articles are like, this poll says Americans want to be vaccinated in their sleep, you know? 70% of Americans want... Yeah, it, right. it really... It's manufacturing it, yeah. consent is what it's about. I mean, that poll was probably complete BS, but what it's about is sort of getting people like, oh, this is like... I can see this, you know, because that's what polls are meant to manipulate public opinion a lot of times and manufacture consent for things, right? So, I mean, that seems to be where a lot of this is heading. It's worth pointing out, too, that company I mentioned earlier in relation to this unit 8200 stuff, Cyber Reason, last year and since then, also this year as well, have done several simulations with uh, top people in the U.S. government that simulated major terrorist attacks on November 3rd. 2020 election day oh and that a lot of this oh. involved cyber attacks uh, on the power grid um on sewage systems um self-driving cars which are now being implemented in mass right with coronavirus uh crashing into people waiting in line to vote murdering americans among other things right and this is a company deeply tied to israeli intelligence and also u.s intelligence they're owned by softbank which has ties to jared kushner and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, and they're openly simulating, uh, you know, major so terrorist this is, attacks on this election is a day. company that they're simulating terrorist attacks on election day of this year. Yes, and you know what's also weird is that they have nothing to gain from it financially. They sell cybersecurity software, antivirus software. The simulations they're conducting don't involve the hacking of, of election machines or any any software uh, or, or any device for which their software operates. Right. They just claim to be doing it because they're so worried that something bad could happen to the U.S. Do you think all these DDoS attacks that we blame on China, is that a possibility that some of those are maybe, uh, you know, routine, uh, like that they're running these types of simulations? Let me, let me give you an example. Um, people may have heard, well, it's not related to China, but, you know, you can see how Unit 8200 operates. Um, there was Unit 8200 that- again, just for everyone who might have forgot, like me. What is Unit 8200? It, it's the Signals Intelligence Unit of is, Israel's military intelligence. Gotcha. They're basically okay. just like, you know, they're Israel's NSA, gotcha. basically. So um, I forgot what I, oh yeah, okay. So for as an example of how they sort of operate, right? People may remember that there was this story that ran, I believe, first in the Wall Street Journal that said that Kaspersky antivirus software, which is, um, you know, I think it's like a Russian company, right? And it, it was running on, on some US government computers. They claimed that it had a back door, right? for Russian intelligence, okay? Um, and this was widely reported, and of course, in the climate you know, of Russiagate and all of this, it, it made some headlines. The origin of that claim didn't come out until weeks later when it was revealed that that claim was given to US officials by members of Unit 8200. What happens afterwards? Kaspersky is banned from being installed on US computers, but who takes over and who becomes the antivirus replacement? Cyber reason. Wow. So, yeah, it's, it's just meet the new boss kind of the same as the old right. boss. Another yeah. thing about the cyber attacks, um, New York's power grid is currently being operated by um, US, uh, Israeli state-owned uh, military contractors. Currently run the uh, hydroelectric dams in New York and most of its power grid are running the software on when, that. When but you look no. at the American media, and so much of it is left versus right, and, and so many people in America are left versus right, is it ever frustrating to you that nobody kind of sees the bigger picture where a lot of these people are on the same side no matter what they say? Oh, uh, yeah, of course it's frustrating because the whole left-right paradigm is to distract people from the fact that the left and the right 
you know, the Democrats and the Republicans with numerous policies, you know, they're essentially the same. They all support endless war. They all support, I don't know, the Federal Reserve. They all support uh, the Israel lobby and, you know, giving Saudi Arabia. billion dollars to israel at a time when how many americans are unemployed now right 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 now i mean these are all policies that don't change regardless of who's president regardless who has a majority in congress so you know basically the only disagreements are over like a a handful of social issues um abortion gay rights you know maybe that's expanded a little bit more since they've tried to like you know move the left farther to the left and the Right. right far to the right and all of this right but it's essentially the same now right. i'm talking about the billionaires that have totally in intelligence agencies that are fucking everyone over right right so that's the purpose of that of course it's frustrating but in terms of the big picture i'm only just covering you know talking about you know we've been talking a lot about israeli intelligence today because of the whole epstein off right but this is just one aspect of the big picture but i think you know one of the reasons that israeli tech and all of this is is being used is because no one in the u.s media talks about them so it's the perfect cover you know they could be doing this on behalf of u.s intelligence and we don't know that right now why do you think Um, nobody in the u.s media nobody in the u.s media talks about them is it because they they get hit with uh you know no one wants to be called anti-semitic right Right. no one wants to be called racist no one wants to be called anti-semitic right right um a lot, you know, but, you know, there's there's some other examples, right? So, for example, there was this really great journalist, I don't think he writes a lot anymore, named Chris Ketchum. Um, he did a lot of really great work on um, Israeli espionage, the Israeli art student espionage scandal in the early 2000s, um, and also on continuity of government programs and how uh, terrifying they are, right? Because they were originally created by, like, people like Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld in the 1980s, um, and I really recommend people um, look into that. But right after he published um, some of the stuff on Israeli art students and um, and um, Israeli espionage in general, continuity of government, right, and, and some promise software stuff, uh, the whole magazine he wrote at, which was called Radar, was shut down. One of the major shareholders in Radar at the time was Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. Well... Well, Whitney Webb, I want to thank you for being on our last show on YouTube. Uh, we appreciate <laughs> that. Um, you know, we'll be in a safe house with you. Um, tell everybody where they can support your work. It's fascinating stuff. You do a lot of work. I mean, you keep the names of these companies straight and the investors straight. And I mean, again, nobody, very few people in the U.S. media are doing this types of stuff. And I mean, just to say another thing, we all need security. We all we 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 know that the the purported um, you know, uh, like, you know, um, the purported reason for these intelligence agencies to exist makes a lot of sense to people. But what people really need to understand is that this is way beyond the scope of like defending America or oh, yeah. defending Israel or defending the UK. This is going into a- another arena and it's actually preventing people from getting uh, anything out of their government. Like, it's actually preventing people from exercising any self-control over their own government because it completely stacks the deck against any type of representative democracy. When you have this group of elites blackmailing each other, controlling the media, it's a problem. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, it's worth pointing out that these intelligence agencies... Um, really, like the CIA, since it was created, has functioned as an organized criminal network, right. you know, as the mob, right? right. And so right. what they're interested in doing is protecting their 
business interests in illicit trades, you know, as the mob, right? Whether it's drug running, arms trafficking, human trafficking, the CIA does all of that. Let's remember the CIA's first director was is not only a Nazi sympathizer, he used to work for Sullivan and Cromwell, which before the CIA existed, used to do coups abroad in places like Panama on behalf of corporate clients. And that is what the CIA started off doing under right. Dulles's leadership, right. right? You know, the first coup they launched was over bananas, you know, right. in Central America, and they overthrew a government because of banana interests, right. okay? Yeah, just like what he was doing at Sullivan and Cromwell, and it's been like that ever since, right? right. It's never been about defending America right. for the CIA, right? right? And so the fact that they've never been held accountable for this, because any president or any, you know, you know, gets shot in the head, right? Right. Or, you know, I mean, just think of all the assassinations in the 60s. Nixon was removed. Kennedy was assassinated. Reagan was shot. I mean, this happened all the time. Yeah, Martin Luther King was shot. I mean, Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. The list of assassinations in this country or attempted assassinations is wild. Right. We're ruled by criminals. We're ruled by the mob. And people really need to realize this because these people have had infinite resources for years. They know how to play us off each other and against each other. And they're, what they want to do can only succeed if we continue to let them, you know, play us like that. Right. right? right. And we have to recognize, you know, as a country that the enemy isn't like, you know, the person on the left or the person on the right, the person you don't agree with politically. It's the people, the criminals that have orchestrated all this shit from the beginning that are at the top. And, and now you and now you see the cracks. Their- like you see the cracks and you've people have always seen them, but now things here are no good. Like it is getting bad. And people can see that. Like people can see and feel that this country is coming apart at the seams. And a lot of people are looking for a reason. And one of the reasons is because these guys have gotten away with so much for so long. And there's only so long you can, you know, uh, run a country like this, take all of the money, um, deny people, you know, basic liberties until they become, you get to a tipping point where people are broke, they're out of work, they're angry, they're frustrated, frustrated, whatever. People always criticize how I say that word. And, and people are really, they've had it. People have had it for good reason. So final question, and then I want you to, after you answer it, I want you to tell everyone where to find you. Is there a chance that Ghislaine Maxwell does no jail time and ends up, you know, back in uh, some estate in Europe? Yeah, I think there is a chance of it. And that's why I think it's really critical. You know, I've seen a lot of people online celebrating her being arrested. And sure, it's great that she's not in a mansion in New Hampshire right now, allegedly. Right. But what people need to do is to put the political pressure on and be like, these charges are a joke and they're not enough. Right. Right. I mean, what they're trying to do here, in my opinion, is that after what happened with Epstein last August, right, the, one of the reasons this case refused to go away, even though they wanted it to, was because people were, were like, where is Ghislaine, right? Well, now they've found Ghislaine and they're charging her and now people are praising this, right? And so if we allow them to set the narrative that this is justice for what Ghislaine did, then they will, you know, seal it off and they'll work their best to memory hole it, right? Yeah. So the way to fight against that is to be like, these charges are bullshit. This woman is a serial pedophile rapist and sex trafficker who was sponsored by a foreign state and also had ties to intelligence here too, right? Those states, their agencies need to be held accountable. This woman belongs in bar- behind bars for the rest of her life. And 
charging her for enticing minors to travel is not enough. I mean, the woman, uh, I mean, th there are articles, you know, from before Epstein was even arrested the first time, talking about how Ghislaine would brandish whips and train young girls in sex techniques. People knew this stuff was going on. And we're supposed to believe that the FBI is investigating in good faith and they're charging her for stuff from 1994 to 1997 in 2020. Right. <laughs> and we're supposed to be like, good job, FBI? Yeah. I mean, no. I right. mean, I I don't know. I mean, this is just, you know, a clear indictment of this two-tier justice system. Someone like Ghislaine Maxwell, who, who rapes and, uh, and is responsible for the rape of thousands of minors is getting charged with this when they admit in the freaking indictment that she's a pedophile rapist, right? right. And people get locked up for like 20 years because they have like a joint in their pocket. Yeah, they admit okay. in the indictment she's a pedophile and then they charge her for like driving with a suspended license. Yeah, it's that's, ridiculous. That's much how it is. And that's yeah. why I'm saying they're probably going to let her post bail and who knows what will happen after that. I yeah. mean, like you said, she is a flight risk. Maybe they'll be like, oh, look, she went to Israel. Oh, she went to the UK. Oh, she's not here. Oh, well. We don't feel like deporting her, you know. Right, right. Where do oh. they find you? Where do they support you, Whitney Webb? You <laughs> you deserve support. You do a lot of research. You you would I would be kept up at night. I could never look into this stuff with the with the depth that you do. Thanks. Well, um, I have a Patreon where you can support me in my upcoming book on the Epstein scandal, which will have a lot more um, than what we talked about today. It's called One Nation Under Blackmail. It will be out in a couple of months. Great. Um, my Patreon um, is Whitney Webb MPN for, um, you know, for when I worked at Mint Press News. I don't currently work there. Um, I have, um, you can find me on Twitter. That's the only social media I'm really using. It's underscore Whitney Webb. Um, and I think uh, that's really about it. I have a podcast um, that I, I don't, because I, I do a lot of other stuff, right? And I'm writing this book and I write a lot of articles. Um, I do have a podcast that are usually just deep dives on articles or topics I've dug into um, called Unlimited Hangout. Um, my second episode is going to be coming out um, this weekend. It's going to be, you know, a deep dive into Ghislaine, the Maxwells and the Maxwell siblings going into a little more depth than what we covered here. So if you want to know crazy. some more crazy tidbits about this wild family, um, you can look forward to that. It'll be available to patrons first. Um, this weekend, and then sometime next week, I'll make it public. It's funny. They're like the they're the uh, they're the Mossad's Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty fair way to yeah, describe them. That's but, true. Um, we won't. That well, would have that would have been the I would yeah I would have <laughs> titled the episode that, but I don't want to shoot myself in the head four times. <laughs> Whitney Webb, right. thank you so much. Right. You're the best. We appreciate it. Stay Thanks. safe. <laughs> Will do. Thanks.